You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thanks, Jennifer, and thank you, Krika, for hosting this event today. It's really my great pleasure to do this introduction. Um, Dr. Agata Fiakovsky, because we were talking about the name pronunciation, <laughs> is a reader at, at um, as a reader in law at Leeds Beckett University. She's working on an interdisciplinary project on transitional justice in Poland after World War II, focusing in part on Poland's Supreme National Tribunal. She's especially interested in the role of individuals, individual lawyers, um, at work and you'll get a sense of that from her talk today. Um, She's also done incredibly interesting work on visual and performative aspects of the law, and she has a book coming out next year called Law, Visual Culture, and the Show Trial that will be coming out with Glasshouse Books. Um, So I know I'm looking forward to that. Um, Agata has funding from the UK-based Socio-Legal Studies Association and the Netherlands Institute of, um, of War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies. And I'll just add that she is a visiting fellow this fall at the IRH, the Institute for Research in the Humanities. Um, so if any of you are, she's still here for another few weeks, so you know, reach out to her. She's great to have a conversation with. And um, it's, um, you know, it's great to have you here in Madison, so I will sit down. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you um, for that generous introduction. Thank you, Jennifer, for the, well, actually, via Fran, thank you, and for the invite, yeah, to, to Krika, it's great to be here at UB Madison, and I don't mind being in a small globe um, at all, at all. So, um, during this time, I'm going to talk to you about this project that I've been working on for some time um, on law and visual culture. And you know, as uh, many of you will know, I'm a legal academic at Leeds Beckett University in the United Kingdom, and. What I'm going to uh, discuss with you today are these three vignettes that are part of the bigger project entitled Law, Visual Culture, and the Show Trial. Now, um, the um, point of the project uh, is to unravel, and is to unravel cultural, historical, and political implications of visualizing law. And it's a project that is a first-blown exploration of law and visual culture situated squarely in the context of Central, Eastern, and Southeast European show trials broadly understood. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, what I mean by visual culture and its relation to law before turning to the three protagonists. So. In this project, I argue that images are an ideal starting point for appreciating how a slight shift in our engagement with an image as an element of visual discourse has the potential to unlock important narratives about justice. And in the project, I show how the narratives can be released through an ordered rhythm of emotional sense that derives from these images, and that are, of course, tied to the specific life stories that I will be addressing. I'm going to be talking about three unconventional figures. My protagonists lived in Stalinist Albania, East Germany, and Poland. And despite the 
um, dangerous political climate that marked that period in time, they tried and succeeded in rising above it. I mean, we're looking here, generally speaking, at no one was immune from being targeted, but somehow they managed to succeed in this endeavor in three different ways. I started to think about this project when I came across black and white photographs in the Albanian archives. I was there looking for something else, and suddenly, here I see these images, and they were beautiful. And there was one image in particular, which we'll see later, um, that I couldn't forget, and this image followed me around. You know, there I was trying to navigate these streets in Tirana, and the archives there as well, and this image I kept coming across. And once I learned more about the person in the image and her trial, I decided to look a little bit more closely at it and link it to other case studies with a view to cementing the relationship between law and visual culture. I still think it could be made more of a viable dimension in law and it can contribute to um, the recognition of visual culture and law as an important integral legal discourse. So over these years, I've gathered photographs from Albanian, German, and Polish archives. Most of these photographs have been taken in the years 1944 to 1957, and there are trials, most of them, and they're all related to dispensing of justice. Now, this is an era that's noted for its application of political justice. It's a presentation of legitimacy of law and action, and it was an integral feature of communist rule. And it's an aspect of communist rule that involved a variety of political and judicial officials working behind the scenes, some of whom understood the power of performance. So a show trial, broadly speaking, is a trial that's held in public with an underlying purpose of not achieving justice, but of influencing public opinion. It's an academic research topic that's been revisited by many writers and many of whom have provided much needed and engaging analyses from various disciplinary lenses across the social sciences and the humanities. And it's these different perspectives that have contributed to ongoing dynamic discussions about exposing conventional constructs of law, <coughs> justice, and violence, and the meaning attached to the dispensation of justice and the judge as an individual. My discussion shows how these visual depictions of show trials found in the photograph add to their effective power and influence. Photographs possess a transformative authority. In relation to law, photographs point to the affectivity of the law because, the image, because of the image and law's performativity. Current developments namely Russian efforts to set up show trials of Ukrainian prisoners of war, have revived discussions about the show trial. Now, in all the case studies, the photographs were taken in order to accelerate the performance's reach and provide a visual account of court proceedings for the public eye. And there are key participants, the defendant, the judge, or judiciary, and the prosecutor. It was an effective way to demonstrate that the law was for the people and that the aims of justice, punishing the enemies of the state, were achieved. These images were disseminated in the main broadsheets of the time, and also sometimes you had a follow-up by way of film. 
and several instances, it included the active engagement of image makers, the photographers, as being part of the process, which I note here, but I don't have time to develop that in great detail, but I do so um, in the Albanian case study in the forthcoming monograph. It's not my goal to write about Stalinist justice because this has been done very well by many excellent writers. But it is my goal to remind ourselves that the relationship between law and visual culture is one that goes back to ancient times. Um, and it's one that focuses on a particular relationship in relation to the nature of the image and our ability to understand what we are seeing. So just to identify the kinds of um, thinkers that I develop in the book as being important to the sort of tools of knowing what we are seeing or reading the image. Roland Barthes, his notion of the punctum, despite criticisms, for example, is a compelling starting point for the consideration of the affective nature of images and more widely connected to visual epistemology. Susan Zontag discusses the meaning of photography and her consideration in particular of its lingering effect. And then there's George D.D. Huberman, who turns to Walter Benjamin's notion of the aura when writing about visibility and virtuality. And Benjamin's writing about his childhood perceptions of colors is important in how he reflects on images. There is a common theme binding these writers in terms of the meaning of the image that becomes an issue critical for visual epistemology where, in our contemporary world, images have uh, been used as a means of communication. This makes it urgent to understand the process of reading and interpreting images and effects of this paradoxical experience, particularly when it comes to challenging artistic images. The relationship with artistic images makes possible to experience active and passive reception of colors, thus awakening our faculty of imagination. The study of image as a source of knowledge is growing in significance and within the legal discourse. And the difference between knowing and looking is something that is very important to address within this framework of visual epistemology. Both Didi Huberman and Leotard valorize the eye and the visual overwritten text. And recognizing the sensory form of an image of the enactment of law informs our knowledge about these specific accounts. So while I engage with different approaches in the way we understand image, I return to the contention that the visual possesses a rhythm that points to an order to the emotional sense of the written text. It's about a feeling, and it still connects with the way that image haunted me on the streets of Tirana. Um, I focus on the narratives emerging from the legal life accounts of these depicted individuals, the sentient dimension of what we are seeing strikes me as unavoidable. It's intrinsically tied to the performativity of the law, making it its enactment an important way to reach the viewer. So I will now turn to the first of my protagonists, the Albanian writer, Lucina Kokolari. Musina Kokolari was born in 1917 in Adana, Turkey. Her father was a high court judge. 
her family decided to return to their southern Albanian roots in 1920. They settled in Giocasta, a place that would have a hold over Kokolari and her imagination her entire life. Her childhood was filled with fairy tales and the folklore of the region. She attended school in Tirana. Her brothers owned publishing houses and bookstores in the capital. This was a family of intellectuals. At least uh, two of her brothers were also actively involved in politics. Everyone participated in literary life and she became a part of that. It was an important time to do this. The country was undergoing a transformation from Ottoman rule to an autonomous nation. The Kokolaris envisaged the country would follow a progressive path, and they moved in circles that read and discussed the key thinkers of the day that represented the national renaissance movement. Kokolari herself went on to complete her studies in Rome at La Sapienza. The subject of her thesis was the author of the pioneer of modern Albanian literature. By the age of 24, she published As My Grandmother Tells Me, signaling her entry into society as a writer. In that book, she celebrates local geocastrian dialect and sets out a critique of the patriarchal society by which Albanian women, by which the Albanian woman was confined. Her other works include How Life Swayed and Around the Hearth. She was very much tied to Giocasta, and we can see this in um, her dress in local costume. I'd like to point out that she was anti-fascist and anti-nationalist. So this photograph here, the dates are known, but it's probably from her studies in, in Tirana. And then we have her, um, in, this is photographs taken during her time when she was in Rome. And there she is with her brother and nephew. And the cafe. And there are some very nice photographs of her in the local geocostume costume. Kokolati's literary achievements earned her an invitation to join the prestigious Albanian League of Writers and Artists. Her publications were unique because of the use of the local vernacular and reference to the prevailing customs of the region. When I interviewed her great niece, her great niece uh, emphasized that Musina Kokolati was ahead of her time and the place she lived in. To this day in Albania, I cannot think of anyone to be compared to her. 1944 saw events that would forever change her life. Her brothers were arrested and executed. One brother remained. This terrible fate of her siblings hit her hard, and she decided to set aside her first love, which was writing, for politics. She worked with the Social Democratic Party, and she wrote for its paper. She was open about wanting to find justice for the murder of her brothers. Towards the end of the Second World War, she opened up a bookshop and was invited to join another group of writers that was headed up by the Minister of Culture at that time. In 1946, she was arrested, along with the Minister of Culture. The authorities cracked down on her and the Minister of Culture for their political activities, 
and this marked the start of the next wave of purges that was um, occurring in the country. Before her arrest, she sent a letter to the Allied forces calling for free elections. Kokolari did this despite her fears of being rearrested. The tenor of her letter to the Allies was one asking for moral support for free elections. She emphasized free speech, and she very much rooted it in the thinking of the Albanian National Awakening, a movement that was very strong at that time. It represented, or rather reflected, a very strong sense of Albanian identity and cultural, political, and social aspects, and is very much part of her vision for the country. She did write about her political activities. She did so in secret um, in 1972. And there is a personal account of her politics and the growth of this particular party at that moment in time in 1945. This is the photograph that haunted me when I first came across it. And there she is before the microphone in the military court. And the trial was held at Rex Cinema in Tirana, which is now a shopping center. That also has a movie theater, but it's not the original premises. At her trial, the judges adopted a extremely aggressive stance. They said, I quote, Usina is filled with hate against the great victories of the people. Everything changes in our country where a new life is born, but the diabolical soul of Usina Kokolari knows only hate against the people. During interviews with her great niece, she remarked, Usina was not afraid at all, and that was extraordinary for her age. At the trial, she didn't deny her political activities, but she also rejected the official position that her values and love for the country should be viewed as criminal. This was broadcast throughout the country, and her photograph appeared, this photo, appeared on the covers of the main Albanian broadsheets. It must have made an impression. In the contemporary context, the viewer is drawn to her wearing this mourning veil. Her veil and her stare is almost, you know, it's quite captivating, right? It captures you. And her focus on the court almost transcends the photograph. It brings us into her gaze. Kokolari is responding to the court's indictment of her crimes. Kokolari herself is speaking legally, so to say, to the court, even to us, even though she was not allowed to present her defense in its entirety. Her uncompromising attitude towards freedom of expression was made known. And while she was defending her view, someone hysterically shouted at the trial venue, string her up, after which the presiding judge said, did you hear what they want for you? You, the accused? She responded immediately, one day they will say the same for you, Your Honor. The authorities worked hard to mobilize the population against the defendant in any trial. As they targeted specific segments, many people were swept away with emotion. Another um, individual I interviewed uh, reports at, during his childhood at an event which was the trial of a very popular priest at that time. My friend went to overturn the cross at this priest's trial. They, the authorities, did all they could to fuel negative feelings. So school children were forced to attend these courts, the trials in between lessons, another didactic lesson. And in her case, people tried to rip her hair out as she left the building. Kokolari um, was ordered to be silent. Her final words were um, made reference to um, her, uh, the subject of her thesis at La Sapienza, and she, where she stated, I am a disciple of the renowned Sami Flasheri, and with me you condemn Renaissance. 
She was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment in one of the most brutal labor camps, which is located in the north of Albania. The authorities tried to ban and destroy all her works, but they didn't succeed in doing so. In fact, her works and writings were preserved. She asked for pardon in 1957. The experience must have been unbearable, but her request was turned down by the Minister of the Interior. She wasn't ready to be, or fit rather, to re-enter society. However, after 16 years of incarceration, she was released and exiled within Albania, where she was forced to work as a manual laborer and forbidden to write, but she did because she wrote about her political activities in secret. Her great niece joked that her aunt, great aunt joked that she was a mortar specialist. During work, she did what they, the secret police, the Sigurimi, wanted her to be. But after work, she was what she wanted to be, well-dressed with a book in her hands. It's important to bear in mind the time and place that we are referring to here. This northern part of Albania that she was exiled to with her own country, Bereshen, was sparse, brutal, and harsh. She was not allowed to visit her family in Tirana. She fell ill with cancer, she was refused a hospital bed, and she died in 1983. She was declared uh, a decade later by the then Albanian president, a martyr for democracy. In my interview with the Albanian writer Ismail Kadar, he remarked that Kokolari was a distinguished martyr of freedom. She is the first to have formulated in a lapidary manner, a lapidary manner, the idea of pluralism in Albania. She defended herself at her trial where she said, among other things, it's not necessary to be a communist to love Albania. The way she lived her life demonstrates her commitment to the vision she and her colleagues had for the future of the Albanian state. So um, I'd now like to show you, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with advancing slides when I should be advancing them, I'm so sorry. I'd like to show you, a sh this is only a four minute film that I got funding for to produce. And I did this with York University with first year drama students. And it's actually to, it was at that time to mark the centenary of her birth in 1917. And it's uh, also marking her finishing her court statement. Transcripts of which I found in the archives. This is your work in Toronto or in the UK? I'm no. sorry, UK. 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 Yeah, good question. UK. Yeah. Kokolari, you were accused of sabotage and of acting as an enemy of the people against the people's front. Do you wish to make a statement in your own defense? Your Honor, the crime that I and the other defendants have been accused of is nothing more than this. That we sent a message directed to the Western allies expressing our wish that the elections in Albania be postponed. This does not mean that we wish to overthrow the current regime, the People's Front, by force. We, the 37 defendants on this stand, are members of four different parties. These parties have different social and political concepts and ideas. 
who have formed a coalition. A coalition is neither a merger nor a union, Your Honour. Instead, it is a moral engagement between parties. Each group is still engaged in its activities suited to its spirit. Each group is still responsible for itself. The only thing we have in common is our position on the postponement of the elections. We are on the threshold of the reconstruction of a country that has emerged from the war with great damages, with many material and moral scars. We are on the threshold of the implementation of social reforms, the overthrow of a feudal world and the creation of a democratic society. Our parties want these reforms as the People's Front wants these reforms. But we also want to exist separately from the People's Front. We want to be a part of a democratic family in order to follow a consistent political path towards the moral unity of the minority and the majority. When this small group of parties found the appropriate moment to emerge from the shadows into the light, we found it reasonable to draft a common programme that is compatible with that of the Front. Each party preserves its social programmes, internal structure and mode of activities. But we share the view that the elections should be postponed. This will allow other parties an opportunity to organise and campaign and have a fighting chance to win a multi-party election. That is why our note to the Allies was drafted, so that our position and their official position would be respected, and that there would be no improper manoeuvres carried out, and that our position would not be ignored. We turn to the court to review my activity once again. I ask for justice. If I am to be sentenced for the above mentioned aims, I would accept with pleasure the harshest of punishments. I do not need to be a communist to love my country. diabolical soul of Musino Cocolari knows only hate against the people. Do you hear what the people are saying about you? They want to string you up. I do hear them, Your Honour. And someday they'll be saying the same about you. <laughs> Next protagonist, the Judge Hilda Benjamin. Hilda Benjamin um, 
the one thing that struck me about her is she's known for her trademark Heidi braids. And that's an important thing that I can elaborate on in the Q&A, I promise you. Um, I have a thing with the hair. Um, and there's lots here that provides the viewer with images that's very rich in narrative connotations, but that is also equally misleading and problematic. Benjamin was from an upper middle class Protestant West Berlin family. She grew up at a time when politics was at the forefront of public debate. She was born 1902, so a little bit earlier than Musina Kokolari. Benjamin was a highly skilled lawyer and a committed communist. Uh, it's important to recall that Benjamin was also part of the German audience that was targeted by the Third Reich's propaganda, obsessed as it was with instilling Nazi-style morality. The regime targeted, amongst others, Jews, communists, Roma, homosexuals. This experience informs our understanding of her professional role in molding East German society along her tragic personal loss, sis. She wore a tight professional mask that hid resentment and, re and revenge that drove her. Her personal life became indistinguishable from her professional life. Benjamin's philosophy was, you laugh with your friends, you hate your enemies. Benjamin's perspective was rooted in a past of discrimination and persecution. As a woman, as a person erroneously supposed to be a member of a persecuted minority, and later as the partner of an individual from an eminent Jewish intellectual family and as a communist. She survived the war and with legal qualifications obtained in the pre-war period and by virtue of her staunch ideological commitment, she resolved to do all she could to establish an East German communist state. Benjamin was one of the first women to study law in Berlin. She had experience as defense counsel in the Weimar Republic, later serving as a prosecutor and then as a judge in the newly created East German state from 1949 to 1953, before assuming the post of Minister of Justice from 1953 to 1967. Her commitment to communism and her experience in Nazi Germany would shape her outlook. In 1926, she married the medical doctor Georg Benjamin, who was the brother of the philosopher Walter Benjamin and of her friend Dora Benjamin. This friendship was sustained by a very strong political commitment and a common vision for a country that was premised on social justice. Georg and Hilda had a son, Michael, in 1932. Um, by the late 20s, with restrictions coming into place, it was soon clear that her husband was going to be barred from um, practicing his medical uh, as a medic, and she was also barred from practicing law after 1933. Her husband was sent to a concentration camp, released, then sent to Mauthausen, where he died. Benjamin briefly worked for a Soviet trading firm. She learned Russian, and she was later sent to work in a factory. She was already politicized in their little circle by Rosa Luxemburg. I mean, it's interesting that Rosa Luxemburg's having a bit of a renaissance these days as well in international law. And she was mortified, she was devastated um, when Luxemburg died, was assassinated. Um, but and that was one of the reasons that she decided to pursue law and had a huge argument with her mother about that. So she turned to uh, the writings of Rosa Luxemburg, also Karl Liebknecht, and with the political scene being so volatile at this particular moment in time and the communists being under suspicion, she made sure that she had the basics in relation to language and her legal skills in order to secure a future for her and her son. So her legal career assumed a strong and clear trajectory after the Second World War. 
There were very few lawyers who studied during the Weimar period that re-entered the legal profession, let alone female lawyers. If they did so, it was only to a commitment to ideology or, of course, out of naked ambition. Benjamin oversaw the selection of a new judicial cohort. She developed a new filter, so to say, that served to ensure that the judiciary was filled with the right kind of judges, that is, politically disposed ones. She also saw to it that a number of female judicial officials increased. She worked methodically, scientifically. There are similarities in the rhetoric and method between Benjamin and Andrzej Wyszynski, Stalin's top jurist. The East German state was a dictatorship. Political repression remained an important component of the political system until the very end. And the political rep repression represented one aspect of the tension between a legal form and a state prerogative in this disciplinary architecture of the East German state. This plan of discipline was tied to criminal law and, of course, was tied to political justice. And there were particularly significant cases that Hilda Benjamin oversaw in the late 1940s and early 50s. And I'll um, discuss a little bit more the Herweg and Dessau trial, where she played a key central role. She traveled to Moscow to attend a delegation of jurists in 1949. And it was upon her return that she assumed the vice presidency of the high court. And it's this high court where you had this uh, important political cases um, that were heard and that were instigated in, against two main groups, those concerning sabotage and those concerning Western agents and espionage. In the first years of the high court's creation, and also later, there were proceedings also brought against Nazi criminals. But it was the Hervegian-Dessau trial that was the great theatrical spectacle. So there she is as a young chief prosecutor, as reported in the Berlin Zeitung. I love this picture because it just captures a particular moment before they go back into court. So she was always vice president, and then you've got to the right the president of the court, Schumann. Okay, this is a snippet from the Herweg and Dessau trial. It was held in the city theater of Dessau, and it provided the best venue for magnificent installation. It was mm -hmm. constructed with neon bulbs. It was a theatrical effect. I mean, there was, in fact, a choreographer that was paid in order to make sure that everything worked properly here. Mm -hmm. uh, the installation was placed on a wall behind the judge's bench. You've got venue there in the middle. Um, visitors were invited. You needed a ticket. Um, it was a selected audience as well, and it was an important moment for her um, because she was also on show, and she demonstrated her commitment to cause and law. Her account in Neue Justiz, which is the main legal publication of the day, identified the peculiarities of West German legal interpretations, making it a task of the high court to reveal the extent of economic sabotage, because that's what the trial had to do with, basically, economic sabotage. And it linked it to one W. Avril Harriman, the U.S. businessman and diplomat who worked, <laughs> surprise, surprise, in the Marshall Plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Benjamin wrote extensively about the relationship between law and the press as well. Further to this trial, she praised the Soviet press, Pravda, and as she wrote in Pravda herself, she set the tone stating that in larger trials, it's advisable, it's advisable to hold a press briefing beforehand and to give the press the main aspects of the case. Benjamin's commitment um, also continued, and there were cases that were heard against Jehovah Witnesses. 
I didn't have time to actually show you the photographs up there, but they're quite powerful and compelling images there as well. And also in 1952, there was a case heard against Johan Buraniek. Um, Buraniek received a capital sentence for the planned sabotage of a railway line. First person to receive that sentence in the New East Germany. Her role in these trials earned her the name of Bloody Hilda or the Red Guillotine. Her biographer hints that Benjamin would not have opted for the death penalty in calmer, calmer times. Obviously, the backdrop here is the Cold War. Although the decision on sentences was not a matter for the court, ever. In her speeches, Benjamin rejected calls for a human communism or a democratic socialism, reminded judicial officials of Lenin's principles that when it came to the court, these principles were the only ones that were the guide to follow and that it was vital to defend the legality of the court. Benjamin, though, was proactive in challenging the notion of a class struggle with that of a gender divide. She actively mentored female lawyers and judges, and she elevated women to many positions in the administration of justice. She led amendments to family law to better reflect the equality between the sexes and made sure that the Constitution proclaimed total gender equality and rights of women. Eventually, her contribution to family law earned her a chair in the subject of Humboldt University. She sought to correct this contradiction in socialism that amplified the working class and the ruling class and the inequality between men and women. Her approach was shaped by her experience of discrimination, but also what she observed by the Third Reich and the marginalization of women from the bar. Benjamin died in 1989, right before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there are, not surprisingly, very harsh um, depictions of her as a judge. But it is important to bear in mind that at the time, a career as a judge was not seen as a profession for women. This was a view that was uh, very strong in the Third Reich and it was still fresh in the minds of people when Hilda began her career. So she's always present at the high profile trials. And this is a, I, I like this image as well because you've got like the filmmaker there in the background. This is a war crimes trial in absentia. Um, from 1963 in the Blokta trial. Um, obviously, it's not only peculiar to East Germany. You had similar individuals who would need to be sitting in front to be shown to be present at the trial, and she was there. So there's a lot as well that I don't have time to elaborate on, um, but I do a little bit in the book in relation to how she was also there very much pronounced in the war crimes trials and sort of... Um, there's an important discourse there to consider vis-a-vis um, -vis the West German legal discourse in the subject. Okay. My final protagonist is Mieczysław Szewierski. Mieczysław Szewierski was born in 1900. He was one of four children. The family struggled to make ends meet, but you know the family wanted to make sure that the children, especially Mieczysław, was supported in his studies. And a lot of information, personal information, is available um, in testimony that he made to the Polish Security Services in 1950. I'll get to that in one moment. He was a bright student. He wanted to be a lawyer from a very um, early age. And he was certainly, he certainly picked a, a very exciting time to do it. 
um, considering that you have here a country that when it regained its independence, it considered which of the five separate legal systems it would consult for developing a Polish criminal code. He was a criminal lawyer at heart. He studied under Wacław Makowski, and he worked with Jerzy Nissenson on the legal commentary to the 1932 criminal code. He also worked at the Supreme Court in Warsaw. Um, now, it's vital to note as well that Makowski himself, his mentor, was an active politician. He was a scientist. Uh, Makowski was interested in Soviet criminal law. He wrote the preface to the Soviet criminal code that was published in Polish. This is the Soviet criminal code from 1926. And Makowski was very interested in the connections between Soviet criminal law and the Italian school of positive law. Now, of course, that's something that was, um, has been rejected by um, those who drafted the Soviet criminal code to say that, you know, keep Enrico Ferri at bay, there's the positivist school, but we have, we, this is something of our own making. But nonetheless, there, this is the feeling and this is the thinking at that time in, this, in Europe in terms of the direction of um, these schools of positive law. And him, Shibierski, working with Makovsky is something to note. Now, also because Makovsky uh, very much shaped the Polish leader Josef Piłsudski's um, regime, the Sanatia government, and the nature of the 1935 Polish constitution. Siewierski's connections with these people would later form the basis of charges against him. Siewierski managed to complete his PhD in 1948 in Poznań in a very different climate. These knowledge and these connections that he could make legally um, made him the perfect candidate to be a prosecutor at the Supreme National Tribunal, SNT, I'll refer to it as from now. And this was something that was acknowledged by his mentors and his legal team. Um, I think it's a great picture. You know, and this is another member of the legal team, and this is the Ministry of Support here. I don't talk about his friend and colleague here, but I will talk about him in a future project. And this is Shubietsky himself, and this is Yezhi Sovietsky here. So, Shubietsky himself played, um, acted as prosecutor in six of the seven trials that came before the SNT. So, just very quickly, this is just a picture of the kinds of the flavor of the judicial gatherings that you had at this time. This is from 1946. I think it's quite telling that the justice herself is so big here. Um, <laughs> I'll get to this in a second. And here she gets himself at the first trial at the SNT. That of Otto Gleiser. And as lead prosecutor in this particular trial in 1946, he um, marked out the Polish approach to war crimes, because we mustn't forget, of course, that this was happening when Nuremberg, the Nuremberg proceedings were occurring as well, where he identified the Jewish victim in the speeches. Yeah, and this was pronounced in all of the speeches that the prosecutors made at the SNT but very much so in the first and the second trials at the SNT. And he was very much aware of the fact that Polish extradition requests to pursue more war crimes charges domestically 
would very much rely on political will and also the kinds of evidence of proceedings that were adhering to due process principles. This was a big deal. These SNP trials were observed by not only national media but also international media and um, in order to see if they met legal standards of the day. And they did. Suddenly, Shigersky finds himself on the other side of the law after being lead prosecutor in the penultimate case before the SNT. Shevetsky was accused of participating in, now bear with me because this is a crazy word, fascistization. The fascistization of Poland that was in violation of a 1946 decree. And that concerned the defeat of Poland in September 1939 and the fascistization of public life. He was also accused of collaborating with the Gestapo. The evidence for this was, in particular, the second charge was tenuous. The former charge, as I mentioned, was based on his prosecutorial responsibilities at the Supreme Court in Warsaw and connections with Makovsky and Nissensen. And because of his senior post, it was alleged that he actively took part in the Senatia campaign to purge communists from the Pilsudski government. Moreover, Shevetsky was a member of the London-based government, where, ironically, he was working on how to bring war, crimes to justice, war criminals to justice. And all of these activities were deemed to be in violation of this 1946 degree, fascist, fascistizing public life. Now, the term itself is very important because the use of it and the way that it was used publicly by the authorities was extended to state officials, and that meant that Shevetsky was put on equal footing as Nazi war criminals. The control over his case was not in the hands of the SNT, but the way that the decree provided for it was rather controlled by the state security. And suddenly we learned that actually Shevetsky was under surveillance for some time. The moment that he assumed his prosecutorial post at the SNT, he was under the eye of the security services who wanted to bring charges against him. They didn't like him. They did not like his political activities or his affiliations or his experience. And this approach coincided with the more general approach towards former members of the Polish resistance. So during this time as well, you had secret sections in courts that were set up um, that eliminated political opposition, members of the Polish underground. And you have flagrant examples of this, such as the trial of Fieldorf, or members of other members of the Polish Home Army, or the journalist and writer Kazimierz Wyszowski. Szewierski himself was in prison in the same cell that Albert Maria Foster, the man, the war criminal he prosecuted, had occupied. And there are no images of Szewierski's own trial. Szewierski knew that he would be facing a capital sentence. And if you look at his testimony, it is so lengthy. It is unbelievable. He dug deep. He embarked on refuting the charges, and he, quote, to quote, I fully appreciate the good brought to society by this new state system. Remember, he understood the ideology. I fully appreciate the good brought to society by the new state system, the great prospects for the future of the state on the way to socialism, on the basis of Soviet experience. He never admitted to any of the charges. He maintained that he'd always undertaken key positions within the government with the support of the Polish authorities at that time. He notes his commitment to prosecuting war crimes, a role that the People's Republic provided me with. And this demonstrates my loyalty 
my awareness and my dedication to the legal approaches that are now tied to the new ways of political and economic thinking. Despite the lack of evidence, he was uh, sentenced to six years by the Supreme, sorry, five years by the prosecutor, extended to six years by the Supreme Court. The sister of the Russian revolutionary Felix Dzerzhinsky appealed to the Polish president to close the case against Shabielski, offering strong support of his character and loyalty to the People's Republic. Appeal was ignored. Amnesty laws were introduced, which commuted, which rehabilitated him. But not long after that, he faced new charges again based on connections with members of the Home Army. What saved him was the Polish thaw, or the Polish October, rather, Gomułka's thaw. And that marked a temporary change. He was exonerated. He was fully rehabilitated. After this, he did not return to his role as prosecutor. He dedicated his life to academe as a, po as a professor of criminal law. And he died in 1981. And these are pictures of, uh, this is of the Rudolf Huss trial from 1947, like the front row. I, there's the Savitsky again. Yeah. These trials were a big deal. Okay. So, a photograph can raise questions about the past um, that are quite distinct from a written record. A punctum serves to startle the spectator, whose attention is drawn to the details of the case, the fate of the condemned, and the subsequent measures of justice meted out. Image is a means to talk about the past through itself. It conveys a continuous message that subsists in consciousness of having been there. For sure, the photographs were also used as propaganda. Photographs from trials served an important purpose for the regime, generating knowledge about the general population and traitors in the midst. And um, the focus of my discussion on images surrounding Kokolari, Benjamin, and Shibirsky can reveal their approach to remembering the past a country undertakes, and it re reveals a number of lessons. For example, Musina Kokolari's hidden legacy points to the importance of making sure that reckoning with the past opens up new avenues of learning about the nature of the dictatorship. This is a road still that's being undertaken in Albania and that the process of historicizing does not underplay how significant justice is for societies emerging from a dictatorship. You have her legacy that is found in schools naming themselves after her, or an organization of exhibits about the genocide of the intellectual. This part of her image is far more developed than calls for accountability. So her turning to the court and saying, one day for you, judge, didn't happen. I mean, you know, when I was there, somebody did say to me that particular person still walks the streets actually in front of the institute that studies political crimes. So it's an important, it's an especially critical moment for a country that's examining the nature of a dictatorship. There's also a danger of addressing the image in a way that can be uh, criticized as misappropriation and misrepresentation. So for example, um, uh, there's a narrative of discovery that refers to mentioning names that have been hitherto unknown in the wider world, like Musina Kokolari. But these are presentations that are accounts of women, which are superficial and often maintain a dominant status quo rather than challenge or further or require further engagement with the individual or her remarkable account. She's not the first Albanian pre-communist female writer or a pioneer who opposed patriarchal society. And she's also not the first female to be put on trial. I mean, there are images that I have that I can show you that. 
and there's a wider perspective and appreciation of the project that will benefit the way we deploy aesthetics and search for more critical examination of effective justice and the politics of visualizing justice, like that of Musina Kalkalati. Writers convincingly uh, talk about the untold stories that are within, um, that are found within her contemporaries, or modern writers like, interestingly enough, Helen, Helen Kadar, yeah, who despite being an acclaimed writer remains largely marginalized from the literary academy and who has never been assigned to a curriculum reading list unlike her husband. So there are uh, ways that call for reframing agendas to break the silence that has a certain, in this respect, hold over Albanian women writers. So these questions are also part of a wider reflection in relation to the protagonists in my discussion and that for sure concern East Germany, like the East German legal historical discourse that Benjamin provokes, right? Who's also at risk of having the same kind of misunderstanding and misappropriation. And also Shevievsky in the Polish context to be included in a wider international criminal discourse. Thank you.